Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, and welcome to Sugar, Silk & Stretch, a unique boxing podcast brought to you exclusively by Ace Podcast Nation. As you may have deduced, I am tragically bereft of either silk or stretch tonight, with both of my illustrious colleagues being waylaid. I knew this day would come, and it's not as if I haven't done a million and one Facebook live live broadcasts on Facebook, so I don't really see why YouTube should be any different. The main thing I need is your fan engagement, so that's something we very much need tonight is comments. What you might have noticed sometimes... One of the, uh, it's a wonderful gift to work with the likes of Michael Elijah Jr. and Gary Stretch. But one of the drawbacks to it is sometimes we're all fighting for airtime at the same time. Two, you know, three highly driven egos and personalities all vying for attention to be heard. So I'm kind of looking forward to this, talking at my own pace, doing it the way I want to do it. But I need to bounce off you guys. I see one person watching at the minute and uh, I could do with a little bit more engagement. So tonight, if you normally make comments and we simply highlight them, we don't get a chance to discuss them all because there's like about 10 different conversations going on at once. Tonight is when I want your engagement. I need your engagement. And you can, um, I've got plenty of time to answer your questions. I've had an interesting week um, starting really with, well, week started Monday, right? Everybody knows that. But on Wednesday, I went to the Day of Reckoning press conference where Frank Warren and Eddie Hearn somewhat historically were on the same big stage at a press conference to announce the uh, blockbuster card in Saudi Arabia on December 23rd. Uh, You know, if you take the story back, people initially, has it gone Saj, by the way, Saj Ali? Saj, I know you normally ask a lot of questions and sometimes we don't get around to them. Feel free to fire away tonight and I will totally engage with you because I need engagement because I don't have Michael or Silk Elijah Jr. or Gary Stretch here to talk to. Like I say, it's, it's, it's going to be a blessing and a curse, I suspect. So, yeah, initially, boxing fans were looking to the idea of Fury versus Usyk in Saudi Arabia on um, in Riyadh on December 23rd. And then suddenly they announced this big card. Apparently, it's taken, it's taken like something silly, like a week to put it together. Everybody is hailing now Turkey... Al Al Sheikh as the Messiah of boxing. There's not a person who spoke in the last couple of days at both press conferences I went to that didn't say, I'd just like to start by thanking His Excellency uh, Turkey Al Al Sheikh, who made an address. It was quite interesting. On the day of Reckoning press conference, which was at Wembley Arena, they, they were on the stage, right? It was like some really grandiose version of Celebrity Squares. Anybody old enough to remember that show? I think they called it knockout squares in the States, by the way, uh, for the Silks kind of mob. Um, And they were all up there. There was Eddie Hearn, Frank Warren, Dev Sarni, you know, the master of ceremonies, as it were, in the middle, comparing the whole show. You had Dimitri Bivol, Lyndon Arthur, Joseph Parker, Deontay Wilder, Otto Valine, 
Anthony Joshua, if I haven't already mentioned him. Um, I'm almost forgetting that it's a it's a blockbuster card. There was there's more than that. That Jay Upatar, the the cruiserweight guy who's making a case for being the best cruiserweight in the world, he was there too. And at some point they said, now all turn around for a message from His Excellency and 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 you know the the man who we owe all this to, Turkey Al Al Sheikh. And then you t- the media all turn around. And we could see he was in the balcony and he made his own address a bit like it, it was almost like he was too sacred a deity and too important a figure to actually appear on the stage with all the other principles, you know. But um, one thing I would like to clear up immediately, um, Dev Sani, who Anthony Joshua refused to speak to, but incidentally, he refused to answer questions at the press conference put to him by Dev Sani. And he insisted his promoter, Eddie Hearn, had to make uh, the, the address to him and had to ask him all the questions, otherwise he wasn't playing ball. Uh, we, he came over a little bit trucking and a little bit kind of tense and wound up Anthony Joshua, but I do feel that, you know, that is his new persona t- to a great extent. So, um, what was I saying? Um, the, um, not a bit, what, what's I saying, by the way? I saw your video of most of it with Miller. How did you find his attitude towards his past? It seemed somewhat unrepentant to me. He didn't appear completely apologetic. Yeah, I'll, I'll come to that, Sarge. Like I say, um, I'm trying to remember what my point was uh, before about um, there was, um, as I say, it was one of those things where you see that really, it's, that was it, Dev Sani. He said that this is possibly, arguably, the most star-laden, talent-laden card in boxing history, which it's not surprising that these people don't exactly major in history. Um, let's not get too excited. It's, there's a lot, there's a hell of a lot more money involved. It's going to be a, a real blockbuster event. Um, I don't doubt that for one second. But when uh, Larry Holmes fought Ernie Shavers for the second time in 1979, on that card, so you had the Holmes-Shavers rematch classic. You also had Sugar Ray Leonard, Wilfredo Gomez and Roberto Duran on the undercard. Plus... James Quick Tillis versus someone tell me who that was. Someone could Google that. It was James Quick Tillis on the undercard as well, fighting um someone like Michael Dokes or something. But that was a more talent laden, star laden card than the one that we're gonna see in Saudi Arabia on twenty third of December, two days before Christmas. But you know what? It's there's obviously been a major game changer and a real shift this year. I heard that the Saudis were looking to become a world boxing superpower a couple of years ago. I believe it was before the COVID pandemic. Um, Some guy got hold of me and said he was talking to some people and they needed some people who had connections in boxing who were linked because they had an in with the Saudi royal family and they were looking to stage any big event over there. And uh, I got Spencer Fearon involved and we called up Dylan White at some point. We're asking him, would he would he be interested in fighting Anthony Joshua if the people could put all the money up for, for the fight at a point? I believe Joshua still uh, held a title at that point. It was, it was before he lost to Alexander Usyk. And um, I, already, I had the word that the Saudis were looking to become a used boxing superpower. That has ha- started to happen spectacularly this year. Obviously, we saw the Fury and Gano event. They put this huge card together, and you know you wouldn't normally get a card that stacked with the like. You know you wouldn't get Joshua and Wilder fighting on the same bill ever anyway, and Frank Warren and Eddie Hearn involved in the same promotion, and you wouldn't get Dimitri Bivol on it and um, Jay Opitar and all the rest of them. Um, the next day, because it was we were told. Let, let me talk about Miller first, since Sarge has asked me that. Um, Big Baby Miller is on the show, and um, is fighting Daniel Dubois, as you no doubt know. Uh, but Baby Miller, obviously, his name is mud to the rank and file of boxing fans, certainly in this country, because he was supposed to fight Andy Joshua back in 2018, and he failed a drug test. I believe he failed the drug test, but he tested positive for three different banned substances, from what I recall. And they all had, like, really complicated alphabetical names like he was he was done for g8 one four nine eight six seven q or whatever you know things that were quite unfamiliar to me and um then he tested positive again i believe um for something else i i, I do remember he blamed it on a, some kind of sex enhancement pill that was popular with black males uh i, I remember the jokes about it at the time so people see miller as a serial drugs cheat when you were saying he wasn't repentant size the thing with Miller is he doesn't think he was guilty. The, the difficulty for me is you see, 
the reason I did the interview with him backstage in his changing rooms at Wembley Arena was because I'm friendly with his publicist, a wonderful lady from New York called Alvina Alston, who is just one of the most glamorous, big personality black American women I've ever met. And she, we hit it off at the press conference in 2018 at the Scion Lane Hilton. Consequently, she always makes a, a fuss of me and gives me access to whoever she's with when she comes over, whether it's Clarissa Shields or, or Jarrell Miller. So she said to me, come backstage and do an interview with Jarrell. Now, obviously, this is the problem. And people expect me to stick it to Miller hard, right? They expect me to say, um, you know, to put him on the spot, saying it, it's uh, how can a serial drug street like you even be allowed back into mainstream boxing? Aren't you ashamed? What's your defence? This is disgraceful. But the thing is, I mean, I, I would. I, I don't f think I will ever um, sell out my principles, you know, of integrity in boxing and outside of that realm. But when you're friendly with, with somebody and, they, and they've invited you into this, you know, to do this little interview um, before he goes off to do whatever he's doing for the zone or whatever, it doesn't make you the most aggressive um, that you're going to be in an interview. So I, I said to him, obviously, people have. have um, pilloried you as a serial drug sheet. I said, you know, how was that? You know, it feels like you had to sneak your way back into contention and almost avoid too much publicity because all the publicity is almost necessarily going to be negative. And what he said, I know for those of you who saw the interview will have seen, he says that uh, what happened to him could have been easily avoided. He said it was down to a lack of education. He said that it wasn't actually a steroid that he failed for. We didn't get into the specifics of it. I didn't really, I didn't, push him on it. And he said that the thing that he failed for, I'm presuming he meant back in 2018, he says has now been legalised in Las Vegas or the, the, the Athletic Commission in Las Vegas has now allowed the use or the ingestion of whatever that particular substance was. So he said there's a lot of grey areas. He obviously made the point that Eddie Hearn has had a bunch of high-profile fighters fail the test after Eddie slagged him off so mercilessly for failing a test, which led to the Joshua fight falling out, which at the end of the day led to the change of decision, uh, you know, that they fought um, Andy Ruiz instead at Madison Square Garden. I believe it was it was April 1st, right? It was, it was April 1st, 2019 at Madison Square Garden, that historic night when Andy Ruiz upset the apple cart and knocked out Andy Joshua in that kind of stunning fashion. So, you know, he's, it, um, Miller was saying that Eddie Hearn has had a bunch of fighters like Conor Ben and Dylan White and other fighters connected to Matchroom like Alicia Baumgartner who failed tests since then. He said, you know, when it, when it's me, you know, I'm a pariah and, and, I'm, and I'm a bad person. He said, but whenever his um, fighters or fighters he has a vested interest in fail Varda tests, then suddenly he wants to criticise the testing body and he wants to uh, muddy the waters in terms of what went on, you know. Um, Miller appears to like you a lot, though. Yeah, he does seem to like me, Saj, because it's the thing. You could think he comes across as some truculent um, Brooklynite who um, who is a drugs cheat, you know, but I must admit, I, I, well, I was sincere at the end of the interview when I said, regardless of what the, the bulk of British boxing fans think of you, I do, I do find you affable, charismatic, and I like you a lot, you know. So, that you know what the problem is? There was a guy called Jim Brady who used to write for Boxing News back in the 19... He wrote for me in the 1980s and 1990s up until the 2000s, and I believe he died at some point in the first decade of this 21st century. He was a, a really cool, um, principled, died-in-the-wall boxing scribe. And he made enemies because if you walk the walk in this as a journalist in boxing uh, it's difficult not to fall out with people because there was so much to disapprove of in the sewer uh, of professional boxing that if you've got any kind of passion and integrity and you want to be a voice rather than just a really bland puppeteer and a PR person or you know someone who, who asks the most pointless questions and is just a fucking cheerleader then that you may maybe you'll do okay today, you know, to be completely anodyne and pointless. If you're uh, any kind of serious boxing journalist with a passion and you know your history, then you are going to upset people. There's going to be people who don't talk to you. Incidentally, I heard that Simon Simon Jordan and Talksport were not allowed at the Fury Usyk press conference yesterday in uh, in Tottenham Court Road, and I will get to that by the way because because of uh, obviously having upset someone because Simon, I guess Simon. Jordan is the most kind of high-profile acerbic presence in boxing media 
currently, you know, what the kind of shock jock approach that he's got, you know, so obviously it pisses people off. But I would say it's pretty difficult not to piss people off if, if you walk a straight road as a boxing reporter and you feel you have any duty to criticise things that should be criticised. So, you know, um, I'm trying to remember what the point was in the first place about this. I'm simply saying that sometimes, sometimes it is difficult because that's what I was going to say. Jim Brady, he wouldn't go to shows because he apparently he'd upset so many people. He felt it was easier to have a voice and stay pure if he just wrote for Boxing News and, and whatever other publications he wrote for, mainly in that pre-social media era. And he didn't get involved with people because the trouble is, once you get sucked in and you attend press conferences, you start meeting people. Listen, I'll give you an example. Gareth A. Davies, I thought of him as a Class A prick uh, for a lot of the time. But when you meet him, he's a nice fella. He's a charming fella. Whether Obviously, I don't agree with everything he says, and I don't think he's the most knowledgeable fella, but he is passionate about boxing he does live it in his own little way and what i'm saying is you start fraternizing with the enemy as it were do you know what i mean and i, I gary stretch was saying we should have gareth a davies on this show and i was thinking well you know a, a, a lot of my lot i'll be like really ben are you are you serious you can have that gareth a davies on your show what the hell is going on he can't be on sugar silk and stretch but you know what he might be an interesting guest the point i'm making is that the more you fraternize with people um, that you may choose to have a dim view of, the trouble is it's often easy to start liking them because people can be charming and people can be beguiling. Baby Miller does not strike me as an unrepentant, cynical drug sheet, I've got to be honest. I need to revisit his case to have some more clarity on it because I do remember he failed for what was like a pharmacy of stuff back in 2018. And there's definitely been other drug scandals over above and beyond that particular incident five years ago. But I've worked with an unrepentant drugs cheat, okay? Larry Oliver Miwo was a cynical drugs cheat. He took all the stuff he could. He took it to gain an advantage in the ring to help knock people out, and you know, and, and to further his career. And whenever he got off the pits, I'm not saying this with any vitriol or, or kind of personal feeling, but he never so much as made anybody blink when he was a clean athlete. So obviously for him, it... Uh, his desire and his mentality was different, but for him, it obviously made a big difference because he never, uh, never put a dip in anybody's knees when he was clean. So, and Larry always said, first of all, I do it because everybody else does it. That was his belief system that everybody was on it. He told me a whole bunch of big British boxing names, past and present, were on stuff. They were on gear, and he said, um, if I could get away with it. He said, I would still do it today. This is when he was still boxing a few years ago. Maybe, you know what? It's getting for about 10 years ago now. It's been a long time. His last fight, I think, was 2015 against Yui Fury, if you can call it a fight. It was actually the most the most woeful televised performance I've ever seen in my life, in all my time in boxing. But that's, another, that's all by the by. But he was saying in those days, I mean, all right, he was on the road at that point. He was a journeyman. He was just taking the money. So he wasn't really bothered about winning. But he said, he still said, I would still take performance enhancing drugs today if I could get away with it. He says, but I can't do it now because all eyes are on me. So the only, he never reformed. He never expressed, um, you know, regret, uh, remorse or anything like that. He just said, took drugs, took them from the earliest days as an amateur, probably took them when he was a sprinter as well. Stop taking because everybody else was doing it, and don't be so naive if you don't believe that. And I would still take them. The trouble is that the, the testing agencies and the media are too aware of me now. My name is is too notorious, so I don't take performance enhancing drugs anymore. Miller just doesn't come across like that kind of individual to me. He, he comes across, I don't know. Um, I don't want to say it just because I like I, I like his publicist and because I get along, I have a kind of a rapport with him based on a couple of interviews. But when he says that there were greyer areas about it, maybe there were. And then obviously, you know, you get this thing where I've been somewhat anti Conor Ben in recent months. It's been it's been going on for a year now that whole saga. Um, although he has fought since, um, I guess I choose to. I, I was taking a dislike to Conor Ben. In the in the about twelve months running up to the Clomiphene scandal, where his kind of obnoxious persona was starting to turn me off, even though I met Connor a bunch of times and found him to be a nice enough kid, like most people are. Uh, Connor was getting on my nerves with, with his kind of bombast, and he seemed to be morphing into some kind of unholy hybrid of of um, a yard man and Danny Dyer. Um, 
to the point where I went off Conor Ben. So maybe it's easy for me to take to take the view that that he might be guilty. You know, regardless. Did you hear that by the way? That it seems like the the Conor Ben. Chris Eubank Jr. fight is falling apart. It looked pretty certain it was going to go ahead early next year. I think, did somebody mention, did somebody mention Tottenham Hotspur Stadium? I think so, my, it was a stadium mentioned in any case. But recently, the noises this week have been that that fight is falling apart, the negotiations, because of unreasonable, supposedly unreasonable financial demands, or at least financial demands on Conor Ben's part, you know. So, so who knows where they're going with that fight now? And I think most real fans don't actually care. When I when I put the news out on my Facebook page the other day, a lot of the the people I, I would tend to call the diehard said, "Good, I don't want to see that fight anyway." It's a it's a kind of you know it's a casuals fight, you know, based on the the legendary rivalry that the fathers had and all that. Yui Fury completely fell off the radar, says Saj Ali. Yes, he he did. Um, yeah. I don't know what because Yui Fury hasn't retired, has he? He's not retired, so I don't know what he's doing. It's quite surprising that Jordan was banned. The Spencer Oliver is talk sport too, and a massive Joshua cheerleader. Yeah, well, see, Spencer Oliver, I thought I saw him because I thought I saw him, Sarge, at the Fury Usyk press conference yesterday, which I will get to and I'll talk about a little bit for what it's worth. But maybe, maybe I, I saw him the previous day, the Wednesday at Wembley, at the day of reckoning, because if, if talks were. Basically, somebody told me Talksport were banned from the from the press conference. That was yesterday for Fury Usyk down at Outernet opposite Tottenham Court Road Station. What else is it saying? It's still size right now. Quite like the potential of Harlem Eubank versus Connor rather than Eubank Junior. I think Harlem versus Connor is more viable. They're closer in weight, certainly. You know, Sarge and I, I've heard people talking that one up, but I don't think. Ben, I think Ben thinks that's beneath him. I think he sees Harlem as some guy who's recently got some TV exposure. And he thinks that um, they're scraping the barrel with that one. I think no, Conor Ben has obviously got an inflated opinion of himself. Not to say he can't fight, by the way, because he can fight. And he has improved pretty significantly from the kid that we saw turn professional. Um, I believe it was, what was it? It was about eight years ago now he turned professional, right? Did he turn professional in 2015, I believe? 2016, uh, seven years or so. I think Danny might have mentioned the Spurs Stadium fight, says Saj Ali. Feel free for other people to comment just so this doesn't become descend into a conversation just between me and Saj Ali, by the way. Not that Saj's engagement isn't welcome and actually holding the whole thing together tonight because it's not quite the same, you know, talking. It's nice to be able to say what I want to say and not have to fight for airtime with Gary or Michael. I'm enjoying that, okay? But you do need something to bounce off. Otherwise, you're just talking at a screen like you're making a kind of, um, I don't know, like an audition tape or something, which is always harder. What I need is the attention on me and, and the sense that an audience is watching, and then I can keep talking. If I don't feel that's happening, then it gets a little more difficult. Uh, I tend to overdo the typing, says Sarge. So, yeah, when I was at the um, press conference on Wednesday at Wembley Arena and did the interview with Big Baby Miller, um, everybody was saying that they're going to announce Fury versus Usyk tomorrow. And are you going? You know, are you going? I thought, well, all right, maybe I will go along. My idea is for Sugar Silk and Stretch as a channel to, to, to be more active at these press conferences and to get more content. And when I look at the engagement and the response to the Baby Miller interview, I realise that is the way forward. Because, you know, a lot goes on to these into these live shows in terms of we put a lot of, um, we spend like an hour on camera talking about all these multiple different subjects but I think fans these days they do want the snackable content and they do want to see you out and about talking to the you know to, to the leading lights so you know I will continue to expand on that so I went down there yesterday and um step into the world of power loyalty and luck I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse with family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply one thing i've um... Because I thought for a while that Tyson Fury's persona, and I'm not anti-Fury, never have been, but I thought for a while that Tyson Fury's persona was getting tired. It was becoming like 
a listless act that was just be beyond cartoonish and uh and it wasn't funny anymore and um and what i thought was maybe that kind of charisma in the flesh is a different thing i mean i've been around tyson fury before i've interviewed him um once at the Peacock Gym and I was around for an interview that Glenn McCrory did with him in Marbella back in 2018 and I thought maybe Fury will be more entertaining in the flesh when you're actually part of it and having uh, seen him up close again yesterday I can confirm that that didn't happen um, I think it is it is very tired all this you know you little dosser you ugly little man you pussy you're wearing an earring you're getting knocked out you know and he borrowed the LE line if you ever dream you beat me you should wake up and apologise and all that and um Usyk, always dignified, didn't talk a lot. What he did say, most of it he said in Ukrainian and his uh, his, his manager or promoter, whatever the official title is of that guy, Alexander Krasiuk, translated for him. And, um, you know, um, Fury was just, you know, singing Run, Rabbit, Run, and, and you pussy, you're going to get knocked out. I'm going to... And it was... Um, like I say, it, it was pretty dull, to be honest with you. I, I don't think it is really working anymore. I think it is a very lowest common denominator approach and i think um when usik said on the stage you know i do my talking in the ring he got a round of applause which suggested that the ambience in the room um amongst the assembled media w was in favor of usik you know um fury um i'm still wondering what i saw with that um, affair with francis and Gano, uh back on october the 28th because I don't care how, you know, what, I don't care if you say someone is 272 pounds and an elite combat athlete, an elite athlete full stop, and that he used to do boxing when he first started. He, he boxed before he did the, the MMA. If you can go life and death like that with a debutant, I don't know what to think. Uh, you will be aware, many of you who follow boxing, if, if you're tuning in now, you're obviously enough of a boxing diehard fan to be aware of this, that the WBC have indeed ranked Francis Ngannou in their top 10 heavyweights right now, um, contenders, which obviously a lot of people have said, well, he might, he has to be the first guy with a hundred percent losing record to be ranked in the top 10 by any credible, uh, world sanctioning body. You know, he's had one boxing contest and he's lost it and he's in the top 10, but you know, obviously based on his performance against Fury, if there was no skullduggery, um, or charlatanism involved, then I guess you can, you can see the logic where they're coming from. Personally, if I was part of the WBC setup, to the best of my knowledge, I wouldn't have made that decision yet. I'd have said, well, let's see him have another fight and let, let's think about it. But there's probably, you know what? There's probably a, a financial vested interest in the WBC ranking him anyway, because what it certainly means is any uh, rematch, if there's going to be one, could 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 be for their title now because he's because they rank him in the top ten. If they didn't, then he couldn't fight for the title. Um, I've never actually found out, despite googling, where the new Peacock gym is. So, so do you know what, Sarge? I've not been there either. Um, they've still got the old gym. I think the amateurs still use it. You know, I, I believe Sarge. They've still got the statue of Bradley Stone uh, outside of it, which is something I mentioned on last Sunday's podcast when we had uh, Richie Wenton as a special guest um, but I've, I've, all I know is the new Peacock Gym is further out on the central line, it's like one of those kind of Debden type stops or you know, the, on, on the way towards Epping Forest, the new Peacock Gym, I'll have to get down there at some point, um, I've just never had occasion to go there um, Fury appears to be a bit rattled to me and, he, and his diatribe appears to be a man a bit rattled similar to what Michael said about Ali's remarks to Fraser. Well, yeah, you could, you could say that, Sarge. The only thing I would say is Fury has always behaved like that ever since we've since he entered the, the, the public consciousness and it's worked for him, hasn't it? I mean, he, 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 Gav Wright made the point that he likes to see Fury like he was yesterday because it means he's fired up. He said he thought he was too sedate and too casual and too friendly in the run-up to the Francis Ngannou kind of a novelty novelty fight, as it were. Um, you know, I mean, I remember when... Do you remember when Fury, before the... I think it was before the third Wilder fight, Wilder was threatening he was going to do this, that and the other, you know. And he said, no man from his mother's cunt can do that to me, which is a little bit blue and profane for, for mainstream television. He said it certainly... What would it have been? Um, would it have been on ESPN or something? It was on some major American channel. He said it to an audience of absolute millions, which... Um, you know, but um, 
So maybe Fury needs to be like that. Maybe that's the zone he has to get in to make himself feel like fighting. Perhaps, you, you know, I will admit that prize fighters have complicated psyches and some of them need to adopt this. I mean, Ali needed to do it too. You, you could say, I mean, Joe Fraser can say, listen, said, you know, did you ever, when you was a kid, you start talking loud or singing loud or something so you don't get scared what you're about to do. And um, Harry Carpenter said, it's what we call whistling in the dark. And, and Liston said, yeah, well, that's what Clay done. Um, but, you know, you couldn't dismiss Ali like that, could you? When Ali was coming up, because his persona was so new uh, in the world of entertainment and sports, particularly coming from a, from a cocky, you know, beautiful-looking young black man, people dismissed him as a blowhard and a bragger and all this, you know, all the old maxims like all talk, no action, or the loudest man in the room is the weakest and empty vessels make the most noise. But that, guess what? That wasn't true with Ali, was it? Ali broke the mould on that. So... In defence of Fury, it's not like it's something new. Uh, to be honest, I'm just a little bored with it. I mean, I would... I'm not partisan about the fight. Am I excited about Fury Usyk? Not To be honest, not usually. I find it... The older I get, I find it hard to get excited about these things anymore. I would ask to anyone who's watching right now, I would ask you, are you excited? You know, um, it doesn't really... I can't seem to access that same excitement I got back in the, in the 1980s for, for the likes of Hagler Hearns and Hagler Leonard and Leonard Hearns won even, you know, and, and, and Leonard Duran and, and all the rest of it. It doesn't seem to be something... I don't know if it's getting older and, and, and the inevitable kind of... You get more cynical with that passage of time. It, it tends to be the case, you know. But um, that doesn't mean I don't... I'm, I'm not glad about Fury versus Usyk, you know. I don't, I don't think it's past its sell-by date the way that Pacquiao Mayweather have been allowed to overcook itself, you know. So, um, am I partisan about who wins? I guess I would like Alexander Usyk to win, but but I don't. I'm not going to cry and shed a tear if, if Usyk doesn't win. You know, it's not going to it's not going to ruin my day or anything like that. You should have seen me the day that Sugar Ray Leonard. I found out that Sugar Ray Leonard lost to Terry Norris. It ruined my whole day to the to the point, or maybe maybe even the week to the point where my dad said at one point he's probably not even this bothered himself about it as you are. You know, he said, you've got to really put that in perspective because at least he got paid for it. You know, he said, it's probably actually, you know, probably disappointed you more than it has him. But um, these days, I don't have that level of emotion for any fighter. You know, it's just, I think, inevitably, our idols, we, your idols are never younger than you. That's my value base. You don't have an idol that is younger than you. Um, Fury, so, so, you know what I mean? You can say that he's rattled, but it's a, he would say, why change a winning formula, I would, I suspect, you know. Uh, Ali's remarks are often seen as jovial and generally innocent. But, but aside from the odd nastiness, I'm glad you said that, Sarge, whilst Fury is seen as, as abhorrent and guttural. Yeah, true, Sarge, but some people like him, don't they? Some people think it's great, you know, right? One thing he did, which I did think was funny way back when, was the Batman suit. You remember when he, he turned up in that funny yellow like Lamborghini dressed as Batman? At the, I mean, things like that, to me, that's creative. That's, you know, it, it, it's kind of cheeky and outrageous. And it's funny. It's slapstick. I mean, can I imagine Joe Lewis or Sonny Liston turning up to a press conference dressed as Batman? No. Would I want to? Do, do I want to imagine that vision? Absolutely not. But Fury is now, right? Fury is 21st century. He is millennial. He is metrosexual. He is the internet. You know, he is social media. And I think it was the right look. for. They say sometimes that World Heavyweight Champions are mirrors of their age, of their times. And Fury turning up, haranguing uh, Vladimir Klitschko dressed as Batman. I think it was the right flavour back then. Um, these days, I'm, I'm getting a little bit more tired of that. But Ali, you know what, Saj, when you say Ali's remarks are often seen as jovial, generally innocent, Ali said loads of dodgy stuff and Ali said loads of angry stuff. Ali, did, you'll get the cliched revisionism where people say, oh yeah, but Ali always did it with a glint in his eye. No, he didn't. Not when he slapped Ernie Terrell. Not when he said to George Foreman, I'm going to whip your white... He said, I'm going to whip your Christian ass, you white flag-waving bitch. You know, Ali Ali was uh, do, doing an interview in the 1960s and he was complaining to the interviewer that he had seen a black hooker get taken into a, hotel, a motel room in Florida, I believe it was, in Miami, by a white man. And he said, and there was a bunch of brother, a bunch of black men in a car nearby. And he said, and they didn't even protest. He said they should have been throwing rocks at that car. That that was kind of how racially kind of uh, militant Ali was back in in the mid sixties, you know. And he was he was saying, you know, you should be throwing rocks at that car. You shouldn't be letting the white devil defile one of our sisters, you know. Which that's not the way 
that's not my worldview and it never has been you know so people forget people airbrush ali i love ali more than life okay and, and but i know what i idolize i know i am aware of who i idolize and his massive contradictions and some of the more unpalatable things that Ali said. And then when people use that defense, they say, oh, yeah, but you know what? He was young then and misguided. Well, we've all made mistakes when we were young. Bollocks. Ali was still preaching racial separatism in 1975 when he did an interview with Victor Bokris. He said, I'm not against integration. We integrate now. But I'm not going to go drinking with your woman. That's too far. You know, so it was... um. Ali was still, and he and he said to Vikram Bokris too, no white or black person in their right mind wants kinky hair, blo blo kinky blonde hair, blue-eyed Negroes or something like that, he put it. He was talking about mixed-race children. And as we know, mixed-race children don't come out like that anyway. I know, I've got two of them. I mean, they mixed-race children come out as often as not, beautiful, beige, brown eyes. But regardless, uh, it's not all about aesthetics, is it? What I'm saying is Ali... Ali was not just all jovial all the time. Um, Ali, history is written by the winners. And despite the odds being so stacked against him, um, in, in, in not from 1960, between 1967 and 1970, Ali ended up absolutely usurping the entire world. I mean, he, he won that battle of, you know, the, the, the United States government tried to destroy him. And Ali, you know, you, you can believe that he had God on his shoulder because you see how epic he turned around that, that those kind of fortunes, people's feelings globally, and how and you know and, and how the narrative flipped to the point where Ali is a saint now. He's been deified, he's been plaster sainted, he's been whitewashed. But that's not the truth of the Ali story. You know what I mean? And and that doesn't, um, as I say, I'm, I'm not an Ali debunker and I'm not um, an Ali knocker. I love Ali to death, uh, but. That's the truth. Ali was primarily difficult to watch, says Erin. Um, Ali's comments towards Patterson were grossly unfair. Patterson stood up to police dogs at Alabama rallies. Um, yeah, you know, and the way he said that Joe Fraser was a chocolate white hope as well, um, you know, and was the white man's puppet, which that wasn't who Fraser was at all. I mean, you will remember in the uh, When We Were Kings documentary when Foreman at one point wanted to know why all the Africans seemed to hate him and and, they, and Ali was absolutely fated out there, worshipped out there. And and he started, you know, reducing things to basics, aesthetics. He said, what's all the bias for? He said, I'm black. I'm blacker than Ali. I'm darker than Ali. So why are they also against me? You know, but um, obviously uh, Ali's children have interracial marriages. Yeah. And, you know, and, and no doubt, why shouldn't they? And, you know, here's the thing, right, with Ali, yeah? I sound like I'm somebody... That's one of the, you know, that doesn't idolize Ali the way I'm talking, but I always like to, um, to explode myths, and I, I am can be somewhat devil's advocate. We call Silk the contrarian on this show. Dennis Rappaport coined that. He said Michael is a very nice young man, but he can be something of a contrarian, and uh, it was kind of funny that tickled us collectively. So now Mike Silk is calling himself the contrarian these days, but I can be a contrarian too. And what I was going to say is sometimes people will say. Oh, Ali changed his mind on that. He suffered. Yeah, he softened his stance. He he evolved. He became more benevolent. He became more tolerant. You know, he he became a Sunni Muslim instead of a you know whatever the nation of Islam, whatever brand of they called them the black Muslims back in the sixties, didn't they? But it seemed to me awfully convenient that when Ali could no longer talk or articulate himself well, that was when all his views changed and all his warm and fuzzy quotes started hitting the airwaves. And in the you know in this day of social media, we see so many Ali members of things that he did not say. No way he said it. No way on earth, you know. Um, they don't sound like Ali, even a little bit. And some of them are lifted from the ghosted autobiography written by Richard Durham. I don't know how many of you have read it. It's called The Greatest, My Own Story, Muhammad Ali. I read it as a kid and devoured it. And I devoured it hook, line and sinker. And when you're 13, you don't have any resistance to that. You believe every damn word that's in it. And I, I was almost ready to, you know... Um, to declare war on the white devil myself by the time I finished it. But I realized with the benefit of hindsight maturity that it was a heavily ghosted autobiography and it was a somewhat kind of is, um, propagandist, you know, kind of black power mm -hmm. nation of Islam propagandist kind of text uh, to a great degree. Not that it's not worth reading, by the way, but, um, you know, um, there's a lot of fake Ali quotes out there. That's for sure. Um, 
What is Sarge saying? Sometimes Fraser caused some of the comments himself. For instance, his appearance at the American Conservative Association was not was not as the heavyweight champ, but as the man who beat Ali. Uh, yeah, you know, and the thing is, no doubt the uh, conservative forces in the country hijacked Fraser for the good of their cause because it was such a, a polarising, iconic World Heavyweight Championship fight. Because, And that was it, you know. If you were conservative and you were a patriot, you tended to be for Fraser. If you were a renegade, a more liberal, and kind of more right outside the box, a rebellious, then, then Ali was your guy. You know, all the 60s hippies, all you know, predominantly white, you know, in number, were for Ali, you know, because he, he represented the counterculture as far as they were concerned anyway. I don't think I would really regard Ali as a as a counterculture sort of figure. But, um, you know, um, but it, yeah, so if you were, I, I know older black conservatives who didn't like Ali, I met them you know, 20 years ago when I was in New York in, in Harlem hanging out with this old black guy who was worth his weight in gold, actually. Uh, his name was John Caldwell Bracey. He was a military veteran. And he um, he wasn't a fan of Ali. You know, when all this stuff about, you know, oh, why should I go uh, to fight other brown people who never even threw a rock at me or America? He was like, his, his country, you know, he should have gone and fought. So obviously that's what Joe Lewis believed, you know. And when, when Ali refused to take the draft step, Gene Tunney sent him a telegram, according to the autobiography anyway, Gene Tunney sent him a telegram and said, you have disgraced the American flag and the principles for which it stands. So, you know, all those old champions, including Ali, were, sorry, including Joe Lewis, were opposed to Ali's stand against the draft. Um, what else have I got here? Sorry, I have to make soundbite type comments. As we can only use 200 characters here, and I need the, you know, need the velas to get my point across. Yeah. Um, I didn't know that, Sarge, actually. I didn't know you could only have 200 characters on this. Torres's book, Sting Like a Bee, is a good book. I can't even... And even that was a bit uh, favouritist. Jonathan... Um, yeah, Jonathan Eig has been enlightening in many ways uh, uh, and an update on previous tomes, yes. Um, the, I like Sting Like a Bee. Um, Sting Like a Bee was published in 1971, so the Ali legacy had a lot of playing out to do at that point. Which is funny because I remember the the line it finishes with is "What an epitaph," which obviously 1971 wasn't the time for for the great Muhammad Ali's epitaph. But uh, I think it's a good job. You know, I met Jose Torres once in London in 1998, and he seemed like an erudite, deep guy. You know, I, I would have liked to have known him more in this in this era when we can actually talk to people and uh, as social media has made the world much smaller. You know, we can get people as guests. So I think, by the way. I think we've got Juan Laporte as our special guest on Sugar, Silk and Stretch uh, on Sunday night. I'm hoping that Michael and Gary will be back for that one as well. Then I, see, I knew Michael couldn't do the show tonight. I haven't heard from Gary, so not sure where Gary is today, but no doubt he's awfully busy with something high-flying and high-powered. Um, what is Alan K. Bromson saying? Yes, that's true, but you also have to remember that Ali... Bro that Al Al yeah, Joe gave him money when Ali was broke. Yeah, well... Yeah, in the in the in the sixties when Ali needed money, they famously they said Fraser lent him money. He said Fraser seemed to feel betrayed by Ali to an extent because he said he would approach him like he was his black brother at such times when they would be a one on one. But whenever there was a crowd, he would seek to belittle Joe and he would seek to score points off him. You know, so Fraser wasn't the sharpest fella when it came to repartee and wit. He wasn't like Ali was, who was, you know, as quick with his kind of retorts as he was with his feet. So Fraser was always going to get the worst of that. Like Fury and Usyk yesterday, you know, if you, you, Usyk can speak English, obviously, but it's it, he obviously doesn't feel overly uh, conversant in English. And uh, he figures the less he talks and the less he gets in, engaged in that kind of verbal warfare with Tyson Fury, the better, because it's, you know, because it's difficult to win that game with Tyson Fury. Main thing about Ali is that he wasn't a drug cheat and never cheated in the ring, unlike many modern heavyweights, says Mick Thompson. Yeah, you know, do you know what Larry Olabamiwo said, Mick Thompson, when when somebody said something very similar? He said, uh, I think we, me and Spencer years ago used to have a show called Doughty and the Spirit. And it was, honestly, it was one of the first boxing podcast type shows. It, it wasn't a podcast as such because we didn't put it on the pod, like Spotify or whatever, but but it was one of the first magazine format boxing shows on the internet. And now everybody is doing one. But um, we had Larry Olabamiro on as a guest. And he said Ali did use a performance enhancing drug. He said he took thyroid pills to lose weight for the Larry Holmes fight. He said that is a performance enhancing drug, which 
that's a creative way of looking at it from a man with a vested interest in proving a certain point. I mean, Ali, Ali did take drastic weight loss pills, yeah, thyroid pills, but they didn't help him. It wasn't a performance-enhancing drug. It was a performance-killing drug. If you know anything about this situation, you know Ali should never have fought Larry Holmes. He, was, he shouldn't have passed medicals and tests. That is where people are at fault and reprehensible, people who had the power to prevent that fight. It's it's not a news flash that money talks and motivates people to do things and circumvent the rules and go against what is morally right or advisable on many occasions. I never understand why people proclaim it so many times like it's some profound revelation as opposed to an incredibly commonplace fact related to the essential nature of man. But, you know, Ali should not have been in the ring against Larry Holmes. So, you know, the, the notion that he took a performance-enhancing drug, he took a... He took uh, a drug to help him lose weight so cosmetically he looked great but he was like an empty shell in that night you know um, uh, Usyk does get his little digs in and I do like them I do like the rebukes like greedy belly yeah let's say he didn't say much yesterday to be to honest it was more fun at the, at the day of reckoning press conference than it was at the Fury Usyk thing even though Fury Usyk had the major billionaires it was just really the bigger deal of the two um, basically, they were they, they were only on stage for about half an hour, which is probably a blessing because I don't see why. The thing with these press conferences, I think, is people want to hear from the fighters. Maybe they want to hear from the trainers as well. They don't really want to hear from the promoters, and they don't want to hear from. And now we need to talk to our such and such who's done a lot to make this happen. Like even guys, legendary guys like Shelley Finkel, nobody really wants to hear what they've got to say. People want to hear what the fighters have got to say. You know, um, so they were only up there for half an hour yesterday. Fury didn't seem to do any one-to-one -on -one interviews at all. He had a very brief media scrum, then he then he disappeared. Sylvester Stallone made a very brief appearance on a stage. Uh, it's a shame I didn't get a chance to talk to Stallone because there was something I did want to ask him, but then I'll have to wait. Um, you know, and then, and then uh, Usyk did a little bit. To be honest, he, his people were talking more than he was. Krasiuk and Igis... Uh, Klimas is his name. Is, is it Igis Kilmas or Igis Klimas? The guy who also managed Vasil Lomachenko. You know, uh, I think Krasiuk is represented as Usyk's promoter and Igis Klimas is represented as his manager. They did, they're obviously more confident and conversant in English than he is. They did more talking than Usyk did. Um, I didn't choose to do any interviews yesterday. I just streamed the whole thing, the whole press conference as it was, to the Facebook page, you know. Um, but um, the thyroid pills blatantly destroyed um, destroyed him instead. The, the thing is, Ali still looks spectacular in exhibition against young Michael Dokes, not so much previously. Yeah, he did, yeah. You know, and, and exhibitions are different, obviously, you know. But um, yes, he, he, he said that black woman who saw white men should be lynched. Yes, it, yeah, get, that's a bit of a throwback to slightly earlier that it broadcast Ellen. But you're right. Ali did say something like black women, if black women go with. Because he was saying the white men should die for that, for defiling black sisters. And they and somebody said to him, not unreasonably, what if the black woman wants to be with a white man? And and a young, it wasn't even a young Cassius Clay, it was Ali at this point. He said that she dies too. So he said some pretty leery, dodgy, dubious stuff. That That's just a fact. And this is the problem when you put people on a pedestal, you know what I mean? And don't get me wrong, I do put Ali on a pedestal. I've got to put somebody on it, and Ali is the man. You know, and, and Shigoy Leonard, that, that, that's it for me. But um, but the trouble with that kind of uh, deifying mere mortals is you're going to be disappointed, and you're going to find plenty of imperfections in their real story away from the airbrushed Hollywood narrative around these legendary figures. It's as simple as that. It's like when people like, when Leroy Nicholas, uh, a, a, devoted, a devoted kind of commenter on my Facebook threads. He says, you know, I'll, uh, he was talking about reserving his contempt for woman beaters and paedophiles and all this, but Sugar Ray Leonard had uh, allegations of spousal abuse against him. You know, when people are going, Ray Leonard is a self-confessed addict, an alcoholic addict, who is in recovery now and has been for a good amount of years at this point. And, uh, and he's owned those imperfections and the things, you know, he shouldn't have done. And there's a whole 12-step program around that where people make amends for the, for the transgressions they made, you know, and admit that they fucked up in life and it gets ugly sometimes. So that's the trouble with hero worship is if you ever scrutinize a person uh, deeply enough, you're going to find aspects that, don't, that are not heroic, you know. Um, what else we got? Mick Thompson, did Ali blaming eating wild boar for dinner, though? Not to my knowledge, ever. It would have had to have been halal anyway, Mick. Um, no, nah, you know, um, 
Fury tested positive for Nandrolone, didn't he? Um, right about that time when he had the extended hiatus, when he also tested positive for cocaine, and then he he had the mental health. He, he uh, spoke for the first time about the mental health issues. He was sidelining out the ring for about two years. It was what November. 2015 Vladimir Klitschko then he didn't come back until he returned against that midget Safari in uh was it was it Belfast in 2018 so that he was out of the ring for two and a half years wasn't he and um you know the wild boar was his it was was his alibi for the uncastrated wild boar was what he and Yui had consumed in order to both fail tests for elevated levels of nandrolone which is you know some of which you will naturally find in the body but not in the concentration that that he had it apparently how's it going danny graham was ali saying nation of islam rhetoric as a as a rabbit it's it's argued ali totally capitulated to the to the to the nation of islam to be on the safe side raman even suggested it in his latest book yeah well there was one journalist size who said i'm only half joking when i tell you if I'd have wanted to convert him to Judaism back then, I think I could have done it. So, you know, he was an impressionable young guy just because he was godlike in the ring and had this uh, unparalleled charisma. It doesn't mean that he wasn't a naive, young, impressionable, you know, impressionable man. Um, it's as simple as that. Um, what else are we saying? Going to watch from the beginning. Yeah. Um, see what how you think I've done, Gary. We're getting close on the hour now. It's been something. Uh, this is the first solo show I've ever done. Um, I'd be interested in what people thought of it. Obviously, the whole appeal of the show is the fact there's three of us. That's the whole point of Sugar, Silk and Stretch. But um, I'd be interested to know people's opinions on how I've, how I've done tonight on my own because the way I look at it, we should keep the consistency here, whether we can all do it or not. Um, uh, what are we going to say? Um, Halal Boar. Uh, Ella will understand that at least... At least uh, uh, what are you saying, Sarge? Let me read this again. Ellen will understand at least, as will you, no doubt. Yes, yes. What's Joe saying? Most of Ali's lines were fed to him by the Muslims. He didn't come up with it. That he ain't got no quarrel with the Viet Cong. He was told to say it. Yeah, I believe he was, Joe. This is the thing, right? When um, the draft issue first arose, when he was newly crowned heavyweight champion, because initially they tried to draft him way back, I believe, 65 and he failed the intelligence test at first. Remember, they needed you needed to get thirty percent, and then he only got seventeen percent. But then they changed the rules. They moved the goalpost, lowered the bar, and said you could get in if you had fifteen percent. And suddenly, he that was when he was going to be drafted. But he said to Sugar Ray Robinson, um, you know, because uh, Robinson said to him, maybe you should just go. Maybe it's the best thing to do that you should, you know, sign up. And he said, but the Muslims say I can't go, Ray. He said, I'm scared. He, like he was scared of the Muslims, not of going to war. So people inevitably are going to portray him as some kind of really bold, brave, godlike maverick who trod his own path out in the cold, you know, alone, like an absolute um, hero. But that, obviously it's not, it's more complicated than that. The truth is less, the truth is more prosaic. Ali, you know, they've gotten hold of Ali. Ali was a massive asset to the black Muslim, uh, to the Nation of Islam's case, you know, their PR, their publicity. He was, I say, he was utterly indispensable to them for a little while. So, you know, uh, they they got into him and, and, and they, they controlled him, you know. They, they controlled what he did and where he went and what, what he said uh, to a great degree, which there are people who don't want to believe that, but that's, that's the, the way it was, um, Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details for a certain amount of time, you know. I mean, it, Ali, when when Malcolm X fell out of favour with Herbert Muhammad, um, not Herbert Muhammad, um, Elijah Muhammad, sorry. Herbert Muhammad is the son of Elijah who ended up as Ali's manager, right? After his contract with the 11 Kentucky millionaires expired. But um, when um, Malcolm X fell out with Elijah Muhammad and was excommunicated from the Nation of Islam uh, as a pariah, Ali dropped him too, you know, um, in that uh, book by Mark Cram called Ghosts of Manila, which is 
unique for it's it's the most negative um, book about Ali in existence that I know of. It is that it is an anti-Ali book. It looks to, to tell the other side of it, the devil's advocate, that he was a selfish egomaniac who was too stupid not to wind up getting his brains punched out because he was addicted to the limelight. That's that's Mark Cray's essential bullet point, you know, but which I don't agree with, obviously. But uh, he was the one who um, used to like, what was I just talking about before that? I was just sort of reading questions in, in the corner as well. Um, we're talking about Ali. Um, yeah, when that was what he used the line. He said, Ali dropped Malcolm X like a pork chop. Um, and Ali, in later years, did admit that that was one of his great regrets, was not making amends of Malcolm X before he died and turning his back on him. But at the time, he was told, we don't talk to him no more. And so Ali uh, didn't talk to him either, you know. Uh, what is, what's Joe saying? Ben, yeah, you can challenge Silk and Gary to do a show by themselves and see who's number one. I think they know, Joe. I think they know what time it is. Gar see, Gary admits that. Gary says uh, that, that I am the backbone of the show. And I'll keep it running. Uh, but you know what? Michael did good once. Michael did a show without me, but he had Jesse James Leha uh, to, to interview the San Antonio boxing uh, star. So Michael did a really good show on his own. With because uh, uh, There's no doubt in my mind that Michael could do a show as long as he's got a guest. He could definitely do a good show. Could he do a show solo on his own? I don't know. Um, uh, the great aspect of you doing the show on your own is that we are able to answer questions, especially my copious questions and comments. Yeah, well, exactly, Serge. Without you lot, it doesn't work. There's no way I could... Honestly, even if even if a million people were going to watch this later, I couldn't do this if I was just talking at the screen with nobody coming back to me for an hour. I just could not do that. It has to be a conversation. And if I can't talk to them, I have to talk to you guys. Joe said, if Ali fucked the nation over, they would have shot him. He knew that. Well, you know, there was obviously there was the threat of of extreme violence and, you know, possibly death. Yeah, no doubt, Joe, no doubt. Um, just as an aside, your boys are beautiful. Yeah, thank you, Alan. I'm seeing them tomorrow. This has been great. Oh, cheers, Mick. Okay, so, do you know what? We're closing in on the the the, the hour. Well, we're getting close to 55 minutes. Um, I, I think I wanted to talk more about the Fury Usyk press conference, but the conversation has organically gone in another direction. Um, I know some of you are still cynical that the fight won't happen. Even yesterday, people were saying, oh, I'll believe it when they're in the ring and all the rest of it, or believe it when they've weighed in. If somebody, I will say, if somebody pulled out now, now that they've made that, that announcement yesterday in London, it would look super bad on whichever, whichever side pulls out. If anything happens now, that would look absolutely terrible. And whoever um was responsible for the fight not coming to fruition on february the 17th in Riyadh will be absolutely pilloried and slated you know um michael is a bit limited in that, that remit of non-us boxing appears to be limited yeah uh i did see a gary solo show and he was great what you saw gary do a show on his own with nobody else Sarge? are you sure are you, you, you've seen gary interviewed but but have you ever seen gary i'm on my own here nobody's with me have you seen gary do that I'm not sure. Maybe you did, but let's be clear on that. Who's the pick behind you on the left? Um, let me see which one you mean. Uh, you, you mean this this one, right, Joe? You mean this, yeah? If I'm going to show you what it is, if, if you mean this one. Is this the one you mean, Joe? Got to give him time to type it. If you meant this one, right, that's actually me age 33 in New York City. That's Long Island City in New York City. It was for a magazine called Tokyo Magazine, like a kind of alternative music and fashion magazine. In the middle there was Eddie Mancy, who was an ex-pro from out of New York. He was, a, he, was a, he was about to turn pro at the time. And the other guy, I'm, I'm wearing the Mark Jacobs long coat. Uh, the other guy is called Johnny. I think his name was Johnny Zander, and he was just a model, okay? If you made that picture, I'm guessing... Let's put it back. Got to get it straight now, Joe. Uh, if it's not straight, I'll put it back later. Um, yeah, I hope that was the right one. Sadly, we Americans are limited in our appreciation of British boxers. Yeah, that's true, Sarge. Anyways, the thing with Michael is he does... The most painful show we ever did was the Josh Warrington-Lee Wood preview when he kept getting mixed up between who Lee was and who Josh was. 
he got it into his head they fought before, which I didn't tell him they fought before. So um, that that was a car crash of a fucking shot. I've got to be honest, but you know what? The Silk is an amazing boxing mind. He he is extremely articulate. He's he's a, he's a he's a remarkable individual because there's not many people who analyse boxing as deeply as Michael Elijah Jr. does. And one thing, he's not remotely afraid to swim against the stream. If anything, he's um, he's absolutely inclined to swim against the stream. You know, like Dennis Rappaport says, he can be someone of a contrarian. Um, I hope he's back on Sunday night. We hope to get uh, former WBC super featherweight champion Juan Laporte, a Puerto Rican boxing legend, in the studio too. I hope Gary Stretch is there as well. And um, I hope you all tune in again. Thanks for watching this, what has been an experiment tonight, to see if I can carry the show on my own. I hope you're of the opinion that I just about did. And I thank you for tuning in because I could not have done it without you. Be lucky. Keep punching. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.